Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because I'm joined for a very special discussion of 1993's Judgment Night by the man himself, Adam Risky. Hey Adam. Woo, on a Monday. <laughs> That's right. That's how we do it. Judgment Night on a Monday evening. We're living it North Shore. Uh, of the guys in the movie, do you think I'm more of a Piven or more of a Dwarf? You're definitely not a Dwarf. Oh. I don't think you're a Piven either. No? I think you're closer to Emilio, to be honest. Oh, alright, I'll take it. Yeah, because you're like the alpha of our respective F This Movie community, and he's the alpha of that group. So much that Cuba Gooding keeps calling him boss. <laughs> he doesn't He, he doesn't like that. He doesn't, because it's not meant it, with affection. It's meant with derision. Right. Yeah, but we'll get to derision. <laughs> we'll There's get... a lot of derision in Judgment Night. <laughs> uh, so I'm excited to talk about Judgment Night uh, as we continue our social distance podcasting uh, again, most of the episodes have been unaffected because we tend to record a lot of shows remotely anyway, but typically, Adam, when you and I record, uh, we would be in the same room. This is now the second time we've had to do it over Skype. Yeah. Uh, so bear with us, everyone. Um, uh, but you holding up okay? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Yeah, the same. Just kind of wondering when the, when there's going to be an end in sight, but not rushing to get there you know because uh i don't want to i'm scared about it it all happening too soon yeah yeah same here i um yeah my i've somehow worked out a way to live my life without having anything to look forward to plan wise so that's been a comfort (laughs) (laughs) because i was just like okay well you know Summer movie season's off the table. Right. Baseball's off the table. Um, and then I was like, oh, I saw this park. And I'm like, maybe I there's like these two lonely basketball hoops. And I'm like, maybe I could go shoot around there one day just by myself. It's like, it's isolating. You know, I'm not bothering anybody. And then I noticed the signs where it's just like, absolutely do not play in this park. Oh, and I'm wow. like, oh. Yeah. So I, got not, I don't have that to look forward to. The only thing I've got is the McHenry Drive-In is still on track to open up on May 1st for social distancing retro drive-ins. I saw that. They're showing Jurassic Park and Jaws? (laughs) No. Oh. It's almost as good. It starts with... (laughs) Oh, Flintstones at Jurassic Park. God damn it. That's right. Jurassic Park. The Flintstones. What an odd choice. Yeah. I mean, I think that they were just like universal dinosaurs, 90s, sure. But that's a real like bleed for this double feature. Yeah, that's a that's a weird one, but maybe that's the way it's meant to be seen twenty five years later at the drive in. Maybe the Flintstones will be better than it's ever played before. At this point I'd go see Flintstones one and Viva Rock Vegas back to <laughs> Uh speaking of movies, have you seen anything good lately? Uh yeah, I I've I Funnily enough, I've watched a lot of things not in theaters, but at home. Oh, that, um, that is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Um, I watched, uh, so I did a double feature with Rob, and you joined us for one movie. I watched uh, 
Gladiator from 1992. Yes. And it reminded me kind of in the same way of Judgment Night, of like this little underrated Chicago-based Cuba Gooding Jr. 90s gem of a movie. And I hadn't seen it probably since like 1993 or 4, whenever it was having its cable rotation. And I remember liking it at the time, but then this was... I don't know if it's just nostalgia or, you know, they don't make them like they used to or what. But, I mean, the cast in this movie is just so ridiculously deep. Like, after those two leads, after Cuba Gooding Jr. and then James Marshall from Twin Peaks, you have Ozzie Davis and Robert Loja and Brian Dennehy. And it's just impressive. Yeah, and it just never stops being entertaining. And it's... um so different than most other boxing movies because this is about like under an underground boxing association so you don't really have you have some of the signifiers like the training montages and stuff but it's more like rocky five like down and dirty and i don't know i really enjoyed it i was taken aback by how much it worked for me i have never seen it but you've just talked me into wanting to see it yeah, I think this is right up your alley. It's, All right. Even for, uh, for you know, I know you're not the biggest sports movie guy, but, like, this is just prime 90s. It's great. And is that just, like, an Amazon rental? Uh, yeah, it's hard to find on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, it's pretty expensive, but you can rent it digitally for, like, three or four bucks, and you can buy it digitally for, like, 12 or 13 bucks. And it's directed by Rowdy Herring. The great Rowdy Harrington. Mm-hmm. I think this isn't quite this isn't quite gold medal roadhouse territory, but this is a this is not a silver to bat an eye at. Uh, better than striking distance. Yeah, most movies are better than striking distance. Striking distance was in theaters while Judgment Night was. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I just located a DVD of Striking Distance for like a dollar fifty because I was like, well, maybe there's a heavy action there, but I haven't rewatched it yet. Just watch Color of Night. <laughs> that I already have, so I can watch that. <laughs> just watch Color of Night and then put a dollar fifty inside the case. <laughs> it's like leaving money on its bed stand. <laughs> Color of Night is wacky. Yeah, it, it's to say uh, the least. But another movie with an insanely deep cast. Yeah, it sure is. Hollywood Pictures knew how to reel the B-listers in. Yeah, but like those are the movies that we love to see now. You know, with like casts like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, I was I was just thinking like the cast of Judgment Night. Not to get ahead of myself, but like you could put them in Fast and Furious movie right now, and they wouldn't even skip a beat. They'd no. be perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Paul Walker could have been in Judgment Night also, vice versa. Uh, would he have been the Dwarf or the Estevez? I think he would have been the Estevez, uh, like, around the running scared era, era. of his life. Yeah, era. All right. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And then Cam Gigandit would have been Stephen <laughs> Dwarf. God. Don't put him in this movie. I just like saying Cam Gigandit. He's. Did you ever watch? Uh, maybe this is one of the movies you're going to talk about, but I know. Isn't he in uh, that roommate movie? Yeah, as the luckiest man alive because he's getting stalked by Leighton Meester. 
I just remember, and and what's the other name? Minka, Minka Kelly? Kelly. I remember the poster and all three of those names. I was like, that's the only thing I remember about the roommate is that it had three names, and none of them were words that I recognized. Yeah, it's it was like an ACT exam, <laughs> like of some kind of like word Leighton salad. Meester, Minka Kelly, Cam Gigandit. Like, what are? I just need a, a Tim or a Sarah here, please. That's. That's not how they rolled after we were born. No, I know. I've I've learned that. Mm-hmm. All baby books were thrown away. <laughs> yeah, well, they were out on their own. Um, okay, so I watched that, and then we watched Undisputed. Yeah. Which, this was my first time seeing Undisputed, and it was such a left turn from Gladiator. It was still a boxing movie, but it was so different. It was really different from like any boxing movie that I've ever seen in a lot of ways. And I think it took me a while to kind of really like warm up to there not being anybody to root for in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last half of it is really good. And then ret- retroactively, it made the first half of it pretty interesting. And I thought the fight scene at the end was pretty great. So it, uh, it, it was good. I liked it. Yeah, it's not my favorite Walter Hill, uh, but for late period Walter Hill, it's pretty good. And I find myself rooting for one of the two just based on the actor's charisma, even Mm -hmm. though both characters are sort of equally despicable. Although the movie kind of goes out of its way to try to make one of them less despicable. Yeah. And those two movies both had John Cena. Oh, good. Do you remember John Cena? I don't. He had to move out of the way when John Cena hit the at the stage we all did yeah but um it's funny because in gladiator he plays the hispanic boxer who is also friends with who's friends with james marshall and because it's 1992 he has a rat tail haircut and rico suave plays (laughs) it was like so I was when I was watching it with uh, with Rob. I was like, they, when they finally played Rico Suave, I'm like, oh, that's like Chekhov's Rico Suave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I watched a documentary called My Comic Shop Country that um, was recommended from a video review that Heath Holland's channel Serial at Midnight did, and it sounded interesting. And I was on kind of a tear of watching pop culture documentaries. And this one is about the comic book industry and really kind of where it's at right now. And the thing that I found really interesting was comic books, video games, movies, they're all going through kind of similar digital versus analog physical media type of, I don't know, kind of like one lane or the other. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are, you know, purchasing comics digitally and not buying like the physical copies in stores. And then there's all this stuff about like comic book shops. I just never knew about where it's, they've got like pull lists for people where they pre-order stuff, but then if they don't come in to buy it, then like the the way that the industry set up is that the comic stores can't return those copies. So then they're like SOL with these books and like having to, you know, to, to bite the, the money that it cost. And it was just like really interesting to kind of like deep dive into these human interest stories of like an industry that I didn't really know much about. And it kind of made me 
I don't know. And I've never been a big comic book guy, but it made me like want to go to a comic book store and like find stuff. Although it also like made me super intimidated where I'm just like, I wouldn't even know where to begin. And that's usually why I don't go in a comic book. store. <laughs> <laughs> I love going into comic book stores, but it's, it's hard for me to leave without spending money. Mm -hmm. And I do it so infrequently that it doesn't make any sense to spend money on a comic that like, I'm not going to continue reading this run. So why would I drop all this money on five issues of X-Men when I'm not going to be back for another four months? Um, but I do, I love comic shops. I've been going yeah. my whole life. Do you have any recommendations for comic books that are like the EC comics tales from the crypt where their horror anthologies are? Do they do those anymore? I don't know that they do. I know they tried to bring back tales from the crypt, but I don't feel like it lasted very long, but I promise there are people listening right now who know way better than me. So please in the comments, uh, give Adam some recommendations for horror anthology comics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hopefully one day I will be able to post COVID, go back to a comic book store. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, and then I was texting you over the weekend. I went on kind of like a early two thousands DreamWorks run and I watched collateral and road to perdition again. Okay. And they, I liked both movies, but I hadn't seen either of them probably since they came out on DVD. And I, I don't know what it is, but like I just love them now. Like I think that they're so well made, and especially Road to Perdition, it's just like it's impeccable just from a craft perspective. And I also think it's kind of interesting because both movies have actors that aren't usually playing villains, playing guys who are you know, well, more so Tom Cruise and Collateral is playing a villain. And then Tom Hanks, it's interesting because like he almost seems miscast in the movie in a lot of ways because in the early scenes, he's hard to buy. He's so hard to buy as like this kind of enforcer for Paul Newman's, you know, mafia boss or, or Irish mob boss that you like almost completely forgive him for murdering like dozens of people you're just like yeah but you know it's Tom Hanks <laughs> he's gonna go home and email Meg Ryan it's fine exactly but I thought like just they I I, I love that DreamWorks was making these you know relatively like large budget large-scale movies for grown-ups and they were good they were just like get attracting like the top talent that was working in Hollywood and it uh, they made some really some really solid movies I was supposed to be an extra in Road to Perdition. I went and had a costume fitting and everything. Was were you going to shoot in like Gurney or? Um, I don't remember where it was shooting. It was just like a scene of a bunch of people leaving a factory or something, and I was going to be one of the people leaving the factory. But the day of the shoot, I just it was it was in the city somewhere. Um, I just didn't go because I had something else work related that I had to do. Gotcha. Do you think that? Collateral or Miami Vice is the better use of the digital photography. Ooh, interesting. Um, huh. I think it might work better in Collateral, but I think I like Miami Vice more as a movie. Makes sense. Yeah, I I think it works really well in both movies because I don't know. I mean, like. Miami's sort of tough to make look bad ever in a movie. Right. Like, 
like what that was one of the things I liked about like I ended up buying Bad Boys for Life, and one of the reasons was I'll just put it on and I can see Miami for two hours. <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, like for some reason, like Miami and I think Los Angeles from like a nightcrawler collateral perspective in different ways, they really pop with like digital photography. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just rewatched collateral recently as well because Erica and I were watching it gearing up for our 2004 redo show and I hadn't seen it in a long time, but that movie's really good. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And Jada Pinkett looks like Zoe Saldana in that movie to a distracting degree. In that she's green. <laughs> I thought she was blue. <laughs> That's the trick about Zoe Saldana. You can never be sure. She's a chameleon. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we both watched Terminal Velocity. <laughs> that was on my list. Yeah, I figured that would be the pivot to your list. <laughs> All right, so... So I had not seen Terminal Velocity probably since the theater, and I had recently bought the Kino Blu-ray because there was a big Kino sale, and it was probably like 6 or $7, and I upgraded my DVD to a Blu-ray and felt like watching it. And I remember liking it in high school. I remember dragging my high school girlfriend at the time to see the Chuck Sheen skydiving movie. And for the longest time, I thought that was something really cool about her. Like I, I specifically remember thinking like, yeah, but she came to see terminal velocity with me. So she's a keeper. Like she's, <laughs> she's awesome. Cause she sat through the Chuck Sheen skydiving movie with me. Um, I hadn't seen it in a long time. I remember liking it back when it came out, but man, did I love it this time. And I know <laughs> I probably oversold it when I was texting you. Cause I know you had just watched drop zone. So I was like, here's another skydiving movie for you. But just the fact that his name is ditch Brody. I'm like, I'm so on board for a movie where Charlie Sheen plays a skydiver named ditch Brody. Um, I was giddy that entire movie. It's insane. And that when they explain why his name is Ditch, it's, like, so stupid. It's just, like, his name is Richard, so sometimes people called him Dick, so he's just, like, Ditch. Right. Richard was, became Dick, became Ditch. Like, I don't understand that, that progression at all, but I'm on board for it. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I mean, my God, there's so much sexual harassment in this movie. It's, like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. And... I'm convinced I was texting you afterwards after it ended because I could not believe, believe the epilogue of this movie (laughs) (laughs) when he goes to no, I'm not going to spoil anything, but like when he goes to Russia, I was just like, (laughs) I'm just convinced that they had like 20 minutes of daylight left and (laughs) and it was the last day of shooting. And then Chuck Sheen is just like, I'll just act how I act whenever I meet, like, my girlfriend's parents. Right? I, they just had to pay off the thing with the dog. It's insane. It it's ends crazy. as it's the Star Wars medal ceremony. It's insane. Yes, it <laughs> and it's like, I never expected this movie to end here. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that movie is just, like, you know, a gift basket of other delights. You've got Gandolfini and Christopher McDonald as very convincing Russians. <laughs> The scene, the only scene that I remembered, I didn't even remember them dropping the car out of the plane, which is like this amazing set piece where he's trying to open a trunk in midair. Um, the only scene I remembered was Gandolfini like chewing on certs for way too long. 
And mm-hmm. I remember thinking that was really funny that like it, it went on just long enough to become funny and uh, it still plays. Yeah. I mean, the, the stuff that happens, I, I, I've noticed in skydiving movies, I'm really, really happy when people's like shoots don't open in time or just like <laughs> in the nick of time. So you get like Corin Nemec just like completely pancaking <laughs> in drop zone. And it's just like, Ooh, that looked really bad. But then in terminal velocity, there's a scene early where somebody's shoot doesn't open and then they like hit the ground so hard that they bounce up in the air. And I'm just like, wow, that, that's taking it up another level. I appreciate that. Yeah. And like from that point on, you have no idea where the movie's going to go. No, it's very peculiar in structure, but it's, it's fun. It's really good. I'm glad that I finally saw it because it was something that was, you know, in the consciousness for me for a long time. But then I just never, never went ahead and watched it. It has weirdly become like a new favorite, like of all the movies <laughs> I've watched recently. It's the one I feel like watching again. I, it, I, it was so entertaining. Oddly enough, that's how I felt about Drop Zone. Okay. Like, I when I, I I don't think I laughed harder in the month of March than when <laughs> I saw the final bad guy death in Drop Zone. <laughs> Do you remember? Kind of. Like, he falls in a way that's, like, impossible. He, like, falls, like, vertically. Then it just, for convenience sake, he flies horizontally. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny. But did you see that Wizard World is doing VIP experiences with Gary Busey virtually? And it costs, for, it costs like, 100 bucks, and you can, like, talk to him over the computer. Wow. No, I did not see that. Yeah, I feel like it's not worth it. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I would pay $100 to Skype with Gary Busey. No, but uh, uh, Zoe Deschanel was offering her phone number over Twitter for free to text her, so I did. And what happened? So, here, I'm going to read you the text, because I feel <laughs> like I got played. So, um, she goes, so she, she sent out this message over Twitter, it was like a minute-long video, and it was like, hey guys... Zoe, I just want to see what you're doing. So if you're doing anything cool, let me know. So I wrote, hey, Zoe, hope you're doing well. I've been chilling at home listening to my favorite podcast of this movie. <laughs> so then she wrote back, like, immediately. Oh. There's, Hi, your, there's your red me, flag right there. Yeah, I know. I know, right? Hi, it's me, Zoe. I'm so excited that I can text you now. Click the link to add yourself to my contacts. And then I was like, you played me, girl. Yeah. And then today, that was like on Saturday. And then today she texts again. She goes, hey, it's Zoe. Looks like you haven't added yourself to my contacts yet. I can't text you back if you don't. If you don't, So click the link and add yourself. Message frequency will vary. Your carrier's message and data rates may apply. Please reply, <laughs> hope for help. Stop to cancel. That's how I end all my texts, too. <laughs> I know. I've been meaning to tell you to stop doing that. <laughs> So then I just wrote back, can you get Emily to return my fax? <laughs> Start texting her overnight. Just be like, you up? Yeah. I'm like, thinking about happening. What What are you doing? <laughs> Do you still have the mood ring? How are you feeling? What color is it? Don't touch my daughter unless you mean it. Yeah. Or don't it's take my fun. daughter's hand unless you mean it. Sorry, I didn't want to mess up the quote. Yeah, I'll be like, I thought you were one of the real girls. Nice. Yeah. You know Indies Rada. Such bullshit. I knew Emily was the was the cool one. I've never seen an episode of Bones, so I can't speak to it. 
I don't know. Her face has a spooky mystery that I find beguiling. <laughs> uh, is that it for your list of what you've seen? Yeah, and then um, this isn't a movie, but if you're not watching the MJ documentary on ESPN, it's amazing. It was really good. I'm excited for the next two episodes. I thought it was weird, though, because they said it was The Last Dance, and originally I thought it was a 10-part documentary about that Sharon Stone movie, and it wasn't. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, I like the bulls. <laughs> it's actually just that Sharon Stone movie shown four times. <laughs> That'll be four more times than anyone's seen it. <laughs> Except the Academy. Yeah. They uh, considered it hard. I'm sure. <laughs> um, all right. So besides Terminal Velocity, which is for sure my pick of the week. <laughs> oh, we're doing picks of the week? <laughs> it's a new thing I decided to add in quarantine. After 10 years of the podcast, I figured let's do a pick of the week. Nice. <laughs> um. We saw uh, We Summon the Darkness, which is a new indie horror movie produced by and starring Alexandria Daddario uh, about a group of three young women who are heading to a heavy metal show in like 1987 or 1988. And they meet up with these three guys and it's sort of in the midst of all the satanic panic of the late 80s because there's all these satanic murders taking place. Um, and they meet up and they go back to a house and people start to die. And I did not love it. Um, cause I don't feel like it had anything to say about the scene of that time. I don't feel like it had anything to say about the satanic panic of that time. I think it got a lot of weird details about the period wrong from the clothes to the music, to the fact that, people are talking about like, when does that album drop? And it's like, well, no one was saying that in 1987. That's a simple pass on the script would tell you that, you know, Uh, the performances Mm -hmm. are fine and it's directed well enough. It's just kind of a misfire for me. That's too bad. Who was in it besides Alexandra Daddario? Nobody whose name I know. Somebody from Hellfest was in it. Oh my goodness. Uh, I don't remember her name though, or who she played in, uh, in Hellfest. Um, I don't know if she was the lead. You would know better than me. Hold on. I'm looking this up right now. Uh, while you're looking this up, I've got something kind of, kind of earth shattering to say about Hellfest. Okay. I, I don't, I don't think the, my, the fires are burning as hot as they once were for me. On Interesting. Hellfest. What do you suppose happened? I think I just grew up a little bit. Oh, is I it? Think, do you think, I think it, it, is it coronavirus? Like, I, I don't think I have it. And no, I was suggesting that just sort of in this post quarantine world. Yeah. It seems a little less significant. <laughs> uh, plus social distancing. I mean, Hellfest doesn't hold up. So her name is, uh, Amy Forsyth and she played Natalie in Hellfest. Oh, she's the lead. She is the okay. lead. Okay, yeah. So yeah. she's in We Summon the Darkness also. And again, everybody in We Summon the Darkness is good. Uh, there's also a guy, the like main guy in Escape Room. I oh. never saw that one. Oh, okay. Logan Miller is his name. And Johnny Knoxville has a small role too. I forgot about Johnny Knoxville. But uh, Escape Room's not bad if you are looking for a new substitute for Hellfest. <laughs> Escape Room is okay. 
I like hearing Johnny Knoxville's in movies because it's just proof of life and I worry about him. <laughs> they need to make another Jackass movie. That's what they, they did. About. It was called Action Point. Oh, yeah. Yikes. I didn't hate that movie. What? Really? I didn't like it, but I was watching it through the lens of like, if this was made in 1976 by New World Pictures, we would all be looking at this kind of fondly. Okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, That's like how I felt about Hellfest with Scream Factory. There you go. Yeah. It all ties back. (laughs) So if we could just time travel some of these movies, uh, suddenly our opinions of them change. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw The Gentleman, the latest from Guy Ritchie, who I'm happy to say is back on his bullshit. Uh, It's a fine movie. It's like... An old school Guy Ritchie movie, you know, he hasn't made one of these movies in some time, I guess, since Rock and Rolla would have been his last, like, Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, sounds about right. Or Revolver, or whatever came after. Revolver's weird, though, because that's his Kabbalah movie. Oh, okay, I never saw that one. It's, it's, Jason Statham has an unfortunate wig, and it's all about, like, the tenets of Kabbalah. Um... I like Rock and Rolla. I liked this probably about the same. I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. The cast seems to be having fun. I know you were reasonably fond of it. Yeah, it was like when I didn't hate myself, I thought it was entertaining. Right. Well, that's the like, thing. Yeah, it's yeah racist. and I think anytime Colin Farrell is there or Charlie Hunnam, surprisingly enough, or Hugh Grant... It's pretty good. Or McConaughey. Maybe I just like rock. Maybe I just like the movie. Because <laughs> I'm naming like every cast member. <laughs> just about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was unfortunate know. that Hugh Grant and Charlie Hunnam didn't. They're sort of like this weird wraparound device. Instead of factoring into the story directly, they're just sort of narrating the movie. And I kind of wished that their characters were more directly involved in what was happening. Yeah. I'm noticing, too, that Charlie Hunnam, he's not your lead, but he's really good at being, like, a number two or a number three in your cast. Uh, when else is that true? Triple Frontier. Oh, God damn it! I still haven't watched it. <laughs> Just don't even bother now. You've hurt my feelings too much. <laughs> I need to see it, damn it. No, can't. Just... And Horse Girl, not allowed. Well, Horse Girl, you know I can't watch Horse Girl, but Triple Frontier I am going to see. I put the parental lock on Triple Frontier. You can't watch it. (laughs) Uh, And then the last thing that I watched, I was very fortunate because our friend Brian Sauer hooked me up with a copy of Kenny and Company because I was talking with somebody on Twitter. This is like Don Coscarelli's first or second movie. Um, from 1976 and somebody, there was a thread on Twitter where somebody was talking about, you know, movies they wish were on Blu-ray. And I chimed in and said, Oh, I, I really need to track down a copy of Kenny and company. I really want to see it. And Brian saw that and helped me out so that I could see Kenny and company. And, uh, because there was a DVD, it's long out of print. There is a Japanese Blu-ray that's region free that goes for unfortunately like 50 or $60. So it's not a very easy movie to see. But uh, but very, very rewarding. Certainly one of my favorite discoveries of this year. It's just a movie about three kids, basically. One of the kids is played by Michael Baldwin, who would go on to play 
what's his name in all of the Phantasm movies. Mm. And he's terrific. He steals every scene that he's in. Reggie Bannister has a supporting role as a teacher. Um, but it's sort of plotless and shapeless. It's just about these three kids. There's a whole sequence that takes place on Halloween that is ultimately what led to Phantasm because uh, they go into a haunted house kind of. And there's some jump scares, and Coscarelli has said that watching audiences react to those jump scares and watching them react to the whole Halloween sequence made him want to go out and make a full horror movie, which is eventually what uh, led to the Phantasm franchise. Nice. Have you seen all the Don Coscarelli movies now? I have not because I still haven't seen his first movie, which is or, or, I don't know if it's Jim first the movie. World's Greatest. Yeah, so that's his first movie. Uh, okay. Kenny and Company is second, but yeah, Jim the World's Greatest I haven't seen, but I have seen everything else. What's Survival Quest? I like Survival Quest. Um, what is it? What is it? It's got a pretty crazy good cast. It's just about a group of like city people who go like whitewater rafting or they like go up into the mountains to rough it and bad mm. shit happens. But it's got Lance Henriksen and Dil- uh, Dermot Mulroney and Catherine Keener and Reggie Bannister and huh. Tracy Lind, who I love from uh, my boyfriend's back, my boyfriend's back and Fright Night Part Two. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of survival quest. It's kind of lesser Coscarelli, but it's still good. If you saw it, this week, would it have been your pick of the week? It might have been, unless I also watched Terminal Velocity the same week, in which case it would be Trump's. So really, Kenny and Company should be my pick of the week, because it really is like my favorite discovery of the year so far. But it's hard to see, So, uh, and Terminal Velocity is just a click away on Amazon. My pick of the week, I think, is the uh, cover of About a Girl by Puddle of Mud. <laughs> which I made it about halfway through and then had to run from. Yeah. Everyone should watch that. It's very easily accessible on YouTube. And I'm saying this as somebody who kind of, uh, one of their secret shame bands on XM turbo is puddle of mud. (laughs) It's he guts out that performance. Yeah. How did you even come across that? I just saw it on Facebook. Somebody like posted about it. And I guess it like as the kids would say went viral a couple days ago. Uh, oh. Is it a recent performance? I don't know. I'm not sure. I assume I let it was the art not. speak for itself. <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk about Judgment Night because yeah. um I recently was thinking about a certain kind of director, and it's kind of my favorite kind of director, which is these guys who are sort of, uh, they tend to work in genre movies, horror movies, action movies, science fiction movies. Um, you don't often know their names necessarily unless you're like a super fan of, you know, the kinds of movies that we love. Um, they don't get a ton of accolades necessarily. <clears throat> and, uh, but they're like great that guy directors, right? And so I had a whole Twitter thread about talking about that guy directors. Dwight Little is a that guy director. Um, And I was thinking about Stephen Hopkins and I was like, what Stephen Hopkins movie can Adam and I talk about? Because both of us are big fans of Stephen Hopkins. And we've previously podcasted about Predator 2. Rob and I did a show on Lost in Space and uh, 
Adam had coined Hopkins bump. Um, and so I was like, oh, should we do Nightmare 5, you know, even though it's not October? And Adam very cleverly was like, well, what about Judgment Night? And I, oh, God damn it, Judgment Night completely <laughs> slipped by me. Like, I forgot about Judgment Night. So I'm so glad you named it because that's such a better choice. Um, is this Stephen Hopkins' best movie? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen much of his stuff post The Ghost in the Darkness, but I've seen everything leading up to that, and I would say that this is, yeah, I mean, I I really, really like Predator 2, and I, uh, you know, for whatever reason, Nightmare on Elm Street 5 is my favorite of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, but I think Judgment Night is in a league of its own. I think I, I've got a couple... Of oh, I didn't know he was a producer on this year's Seaberg. Um, oh, the Kristen the Stewart Kristen movie? Stewart movie that I'm looking forward to seeing. Um, I've got a couple of his movies coming from Amazon that I never saw. I never saw The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, but I've got. I saw that. Okay, I've got The Ghost in the Darkness coming because I've never seen it. I've got The Reaping coming. Mm-hmm. And I've got under suspicion, and then I'm gonna watch. Oh wow, he did three Tales from the Crypt too. Uh, and then I'm gonna watch Blown Away because I think it's streaming for free on like IMDb TV. Yeah, I remember Blown Away being kind of funny, but not in the spirit of the movie. But I was also like 12 or 13 years old when I watched it. Yeah. Have you seen his first movie, Dangerous Game? I take it back. No, I have not seen all of his movies leading up to Judgment Night. What, what was Dangerous Game? It, it must be like Australian or something because I thought Nightmare on Elm Street was his first movie. Mm-hmm. But he's got a TV movie called Absolutely and another movie called Dangerous Game on IMDb, which has a an uncredited co-director credit from a guy named David Lewis. So maybe the movie was taken away from him. How would that ever happen? Yeah, right. It's, it's I will. Happen. I will look into it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen Hopkins was one of those directors where he was just not in my consciousness, consciousness like really much at all. And then when we went to that flashback weekend where there were many guests from Nightmare on Elm Street Five, and everybody just like Danny Hassel, Kelly Joe Minter. Lisa Wilcox, they just all seemed awesome. And that's where Hopkins bump came from because yeah. it was like, oh, I think I kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street 5 more now because of this bump from a convention. And it's like, oh, a Hopkins bump, if you will. So that sort of just got me ready to really root for the guy. And then I watched Predator 2 and I'm the only person on earth who likes it more than Predator 1. But Judgment Night was a movie that I grew up with. Like, I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it either on video, like sleepovers when I was growing up, or on cable. And it was something that's, like, very familiar to me, like, when I go back and watch it now. And then um, I went for, like, a long gap between kind of its cable run to when we saw it at Cinepocalypse a couple years ago. And um, Stephen Hopkins was there in the audience, and he did a Q&A, which is one of the best Q&As I've ever been to um, post-movie, and we could go into that in a bit. Um, but 
Stephen Hopkins was like there sitting in the audience with us pretty close to like yeah. where we were sitting. And the entire time I was just like, does he know that he made like one of the greatest movies ever? <laughs> <laughs> like in the, like, I know it's not like the best movie of 93. I know it's not even the best movie maybe of like the fall of 93. That's malice. But <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sitting there watching the movie, and in the moment, I'm just like, "This is uh, there's nothing this movie is doing wrong. Like, this is perfect for what it is, for, like, this chase, like, Southern Comfort Warriors 90s, you know, iteration. It's it, got, it has everything that you want, and I think some really game performances, which really go a long way. I think um, it was at the time that we saw it at Cinepocalypse... Um, for a long time, it was hard to see because maybe it had come out on DVD, but it had gone out of print. There was no Blu-ray. You couldn't even rent it digitally, I don't think, for a long time. And then it was available digitally around the same time that we saw it at Cinepocalypse, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Because didn't they show it? Yeah, they showed it uh, like not on film at Cinepocalypse. Wasn't it on like a Blu-ray? Yeah, it was supposed to be film. And it ended up being like a German Blu-ray or something that they just took the subtitles out of because the film, something happened and they weren't able to get the film print. But it was literally a double feature with uh, Demon Knight. Like we saw Demon Knight and then Judgment Knight. And it was one of the best nights of movies ever uh, because Ernest Dickerson was there and then Stephen Hopkins was there. And I think that Judgment Knight is probably Stephen Hopkins' best movie and again, I haven't seen all of his movies. Uh, I'm going to try to fill in some gaps, and then I'm going to try to write a thing about uh, one of those director pieces about Stephen Hopkins. Um, because I think it's the one that succeeds the most on its own terms. I think Predator 2 almost does, but I think Predator 2 is a little more ambitious than it's able to achieve. I think Lost in Space is way more ambitious than it's able to achieve. I think Nightmare 5 is a lot more ambitious than it's kind of able to achieve. And again, if you watch the Never Sleep Again documentary, you'll fully understand why that is, because uh, they were kind of making things up as they went along and having budget taken away. And what Stephen Hopkins achieved on that movie is kind of a miracle, given what he had to work with. Um, But Judgment Night, I feel like, he comes closest to realizing whatever vision he originally had. And that's why I think it's kind of his most successful movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, what I will say though, going back to nightmare on Elm street five for a second on recent viewings, when you pair four and five, it has for me like this emotional arc. That's like really odd for a nightmare on Elm street sequel entry it feels like that's the Kill Bill 1 and 2. Because <laughs> it's all about Alice. Right. And if you say, if you go into the movie being like, okay, she's the bride and Freddy's Bill, it it has like these extra, these extra wrinkles that's, that, that hits you pretty good. And I kind of, and I know it's blasphemy to say, and you already said this by saying it was your favorite of the sequels, I kind of prefer 5 to 4 because I think four is like a more consistent movie, but I think five takes bigger chances. And that's kind of why I like five more. 
Yeah, I think it's got a big like sentimental heart that a lot of horror sequels don't, yeah. which draws me in a bit. Um, yeah, going back to Judgment Night, though, one thing I wanted to ask you was, do you think this is Dennis Leary's best film performance? Um, I really like The Ref. Have you ever seen The Ref? I haven't, no. I really like it. Um, and, you know, it's one of those movies that now we probably don't talk about as much because it stars Kevin Spacey. And uh, The Ref was kind of really able to capitalize on Dennis Leary's shtick in a really good way. Um, it's one of those really good, like, anti-Christmas movies. It's not anti-Christmas, but it's a Christmas movie that, you know, is a dark comedy. It's like a dark, yeah. Um, and I think... He's maybe a little more at home in the ref because there's times in Judgment Night where I feel like he's a little bit out of his depth in terms of being the biggest badass of everyone. Mm -hmm. I don't always buy him as the biggest badass. Uh, And clearly his best performance is Edgar Friendly. Or Coach Penn in Draft Day. Or Coach Penn in Draft Day. I mean, he's kind of always good, you know, with like – yeah. most I don't know for some reason for me in Judgment Night he I I don't know and this is such a weird association and like they're my team so I mean this in the nicest way but like I usually am kind of scared when I go to White Sox games <laughs> and like Dennis Leary and Everlast and um Peter Green and fake Chance Boudreaux like <laughs> they How does like, it feel to be haunted <laughs> My mama took one. one. (laughs) Like, they feel like the guys who are, like, ruining your fun at a White Sox game, (laughs) but you're afraid to tell guest services because they'll kill you. I I mean, I think Peter Green could have played the same role and been just as effective because Peter Green, I think, is an actual sociopath murderer, which we can talk about, but... uh, Yeah, yeah. He's a legit scary dude. And Dennis, yeah. Dennis Lee, I almost called him Dennis Miller. Hey, man. I'm coming <laughs> to get you. off this rope, babe. <laughs> you can take my money, but you can't take my money, babe. You North Shore jerk offs <laughs> over here. <laughs> um, uh, beer, beer, beer. Oh, you said we had to talk about Everlast because we were texting and I made an Everlast joke. What do we, What do you want to say about Everlast? Um, every, I, this isn't like, I, it's less than a handful, but like every bully I've ever come across in my entire life or person that I've been scared would kick my ass looks like Everlast. <laughs> Everlast being in this movie was like one of the reasons I wanted to see it in 1993. Uh, I saw this movie again with the same high school girlfriend that came with me to see Terminal Velocity. Uh, and our big takeaway was how often the character said Jeremy Piven's name because half the dialogue in this movie is just people going, Ray, Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, He's the I, razor. <laughs> I, I was a big fan of that first house of pain record. And I was listening to it a lot at the time. And so I was like, Everlast is in a movie. I'm going. Uh, and I had this soundtrack too. And so of course uh, everybody had this soundtrack and that was a big appeal for going to see the movie. Cause it was like this brilliant idea that like, 
I won't say nobody had ever done before because obviously there's Aerosmith and Run DMC doing Walk This Way. and You know, there had certainly been like rock and rap collaborations, but just to combine these styles of music and the way that they did seemed like this master stroke. Yeah, I think it really adds a lot to the movie, too. It's not just like a soundtrack that seems entirely commercially driven. I think like the way that it's incorporated into the movie it just kind of feeds off of like the confrontational nature of the whole thing. Because especially when Stephen Hopkins was talking about it, it's an apocalypse. He was saying like, I think he went into like one of the recording studios, like when they were doing one of the tracks and it was like the rock group and then the rap group. And they like, were not backing down. Like yeah, for them, it was yeah. like a real pissing match. And you could feel that in the movie. And I think like, there's a and it's it doesn't have to be subtle, but like there's a lot of circumstances in the movie where it's just you know two sides of the world that don't usually interact and don't feel good about the other side, like are butting heads in a very kind of confrontational way. And I think the music sort of has that heartbeat to the movie, like on top of you know Alan Silvestri's score, which is like really just you know propulsive and and uh you know heightening things it's fascinating to me that the song that i feel like gets the most play in the movie or that is the most prominently featured is that de la soul teenage fan club song that like starts and or starts and ends the movie because it's like the least in keeping with the spirit of the film it's very sort of poppy and upbeat and that's not the movie at all but that's like the one you walk away from remembering um, and it never occurred to me that the recording of the album would actually be contentious between these two sides. I thought that was so interesting when Stephen Hopkins talked about that. Yeah, it was such a weird time for music, like because that was like with gangsta rap, like really kind of coming to the fray. And yeah, it was just like a lot of these artists were adopting lifestyles that maybe not were naturally who they were, but it was you know, all about that image. And yeah, it was, it, it really adds to the movie in a, in a lot of ways. One thing that I think is, so the De La Soul teenage fan club song that you mentioned, that's my favorite song off the album. Um, it's one of it's mine. One I have a hard time choosing. Yeah. There's, I, I really like the dinosaur junior and Del the funky homo sapien song. I really like just another victim. There's like too many to the faith no more booyah tribe one is really cool there's there's too yeah. many. but then there's some like the pearl jam cypress hill one has always disappointed me because i'm like i expect more from both of you right yeah i thought it was interesting though like this is the first time i noticed like it happens like five seconds into the movie where they play this you know and it's just like oh you know it's the calm before the storm but even in that moment it's these two little shits running their bikes through a dude's like, you know, pile of dry leaves that he yeah, raked. Yeah. So even then it's just like, Oh, this movie's all about the fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, you mentioned Alan Silvestri's score and I didn't know this at the time that I saw the movie, like the score is fine, but I've read after the fact that it was originally, the original score that he submitted was like an electronic score. And mm-hmm. I have to admit that like, as a fan of this movie, which is very reminiscent of something like assault on precinct 13. There's a big part of me that wishes that he had been able to keep that electronic score. I haven't heard any of the tracks. I don't know if they're any good. I know a few of them still exist. There's like a soundtrack CD of his score with a few of those tracks on there that 
I might like to try to track down. But uh, rewatching the movie now and thinking about it with an all-electronic score, I was like, oh, that might be really, really cool. Yeah, I heard that um, Hopkins, like, said that he didn't want that because he was such a fan of, like, what Alan Silvestri did for Predator 2, that he basically just wanted Predator 2 again. Which, for me, that kind of a score makes perfect sense for Predator 2. His Predator 2 score is awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, I might have liked a different vibe for Judgment Night, but it's fine. I mean, the score is fine. It doesn't detract from the movie at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, One thing that I think is really interesting about the movie is it's got, like this urban panic element to it. That, <laughs> you think? <laughs> a little bit. Um, that, I mean, it, you know, I and I mean this in the nicest way, when you grew up in, like, suburban Chicago, there was, whether it be, like, Cabrini Green in the early 90s or whatnot, like, there was always this, this kind of air where, like, stories were passed down of, like, the areas that if you live in the suburbs, you go to or you don't go to. Right. And the expressway was always, like, the life preserver safety net <laughs> from, like, the neighborhoods that you weren't supposed to go to. And I think that the movie's really interesting in the sense that, like, these guys who are shitheads, like, they're, you know, macho douchebags, whether they're, like, reformed macho douchebags like Emilio Estevez, or they're, like living in the past macho douchebags who still wear their jackets from Purdue, like Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> or like Steven Dorff, who's like little man syndrome douchebag or Jeremy Piven, who is like, you know, yuppie, like shyster douchebag. And then um, they're on the expressway and they get into like that altercation, like while they're in the traffic jam with that guy with his girlfriend and everything. And it's like, okay, like at this level, these guys are, the alpha dogs. And then like when you take them out of that environment, like then Dennis Leary and his gang are like the alpha dogs. And then when Dennis Leary has to um, kind of barter with the group that live in the housing projects, then he kind of has to defer a little bit too, but then like, you know, but also kind of save face and like be more kind of political with like the dynamics of those groups. So I think it's really interesting just kind of showing this different kind of schisms of masculinity within the different areas. Yeah, for sure. I mean, masculinity was very much on my mind as I was watching the movie and the way that it portrays different types of masculinity. It, it loses me. I mean, not the movie, but like Emilio Estevez, who should, should be the character that we're rooting for. I mean, his first scene, he's like whining about like, I deserve this. I should get to go out with my friends because I have been home with a baby for three months. And he correctly gets called out on it very, very quickly. But it's like, oh, that's not the way for him to uh, garner our sympathy by him being like a kind of a baby. Yeah. The thing that I think is interesting, though, is like he's he's so... Like, they build him up like he was the guy. He was, like, the hothead before of this group. And then now he's kind of, you know, just completely the 180 degrees in the opposite direction where he's very anti-confrontational and stuff. And that's the thing that I like the most about Estevez's performance is throughout the movie, he's the one that's panicking the least. He's the one who kind of, like, is scared, but he's not he seems almost less scared and more prepared than he was at the beginning of the movie. 
And I think that's really interesting. But he also has like that kind of energy where it's like you never feel like he's, you know, overdoing it with like the macho-ness. Like even at the end of the movie, like when he's trying to create a diversion to keep Dennis Leary away from like Cuba Gooding Jr. and Stephen Dorff, he's like screaming kind of out of fear at just as much as like trying to divert attention to him. Right. And it's just all this kind of like primal kind of rage to him. So I, I thought that was really interesting. I've never like completely loved the Estevez performance until this viewing. And then for some reason it really clicked for me. I think a big part of why it clicked for me this time. And I'm, I'm like, I won't say 50-50, but I might be like 70-30 on Emilio Estevez because I really like him in a lot of movies. And then there's some movies where I just he doesn't do anything for me. He's a very specific type of actor. His voice is a very specific voice and can be used correctly or incorrectly. Um, but I do like him in this movie more now since we saw that Q&A <laughs> because yeah. – what Stephen Hopkins revealed is that of all of the guys, and he said the whole shoot was kind of a dick measuring contest between all these guys who all thought they were the toughest and the baddest in this movie about these guys who are meant to be the toughest and the baddest. And he said of all of them, the one that he most believed was really walked the walk was Emilio Estevez. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I, I liked how... He said that, like, the guys who played the villains went, like, real method and, like, were going to bars and, like, picking fights and stuff. And the entire time, Dennis Leary was just, like, egging them on. (laughs) I thought that was really fascinating. You're going to let him call you that, babe? I'm still just making him Dennis Miller. (laughs) That's another victim, huh? Um, they, he also revealed, and we might have told this story after that Q&A on a different episode of the podcast, but he also told a story about Peter Green, um, who plays like the number two villain in the movie, and many people will recognize from like Pulp Fiction or uh, a movie called, is that Clean Shaven? Mm-hmm. Okay. He was in The Mask. Oh, right. He's the bad guy in The Mask, too. Yeah. Um, that he's kind of a, a real life asshole, for lack of a better word. That they were in a cab, and Peter Green was like berating the cab driver with like racist taunts. And eventually, the cab came to a stop, and Stephen Hopkins just laid him out. Yeah, which yeah, made me he... love Stephen Hopkins even more. Yeah, everybody basically was cheering. <laughs> It was great. Like Stephen Hopkins came out of the Q and A with a, like hundreds more fans. Yeah, if they well, weren't already. Sure. Yeah, and he really does like kind of direct the shit out of this movie. I was really oh, yeah. admiring all the like uh, split diopter shots. Um, it's a really well directed, like technically well made movie in terms of how he like generates suspense in sequences. Um, and how he pays stuff off. It's a, it's, it's a really well-made movie. Yeah. He seems to be having a lot of fun directing it too. And it's, and also it's, I like that it's very kind of scaled back in the size of its action too. So all, you know, you get people like drop it off a roof 
or like you have to cross a ladder from one rooftop to another rooftop or somebody gets pushed over like a banister and like they hit the they hit a bunch of stairs like two floors down and then they're dead and it's not like they come back to life or right. anything like that so i mean i i really appreciate just how gritty and kind of I, I feel stupid saying that it's gritty and it's grounded, but like <laughs> it is, it's gritty and it's grounded. So I don't know, but uh, yeah. And I, I like Dennis Leary from the standpoint of, I believe him as this gang leader because the other three guys are more like the muscle people that like you would get as your enforcers. And he's kind of like the fast talking operator guy um, who just has no moral consciousness to him either. But it, listen to his 93. He had this, he had Who's the Man, Demolition Man, The Sandlot, and Loaded Weapon 1. Wow, he owned 93. Yeah, that was his coming out year. That's insane. That was really just like his spots on MTV must have just happened and uh, everyone was trying to capitalize on how hot he was at the time, you know? Yeah, and he was just like ranting about eating Jello and Cindy Crawford. <laughs> right, right. I think the only one of those I didn't see in theaters in '93 was The Sandlot. I I saw Demolition Man and Loaded Weapon one in theaters. I did not see The Sandlot. In the I still haven't seen Who's the Man though. I do own it. <laughs> I saw it opening night. I saw that and The Dark Half as a double feature, and I don't remember any of it. <laughs> Huh, right. Um, yeah, and this is also just kind of like it was partly shot in Chicago and partly shot in Los Angeles, from what I read. Um, but I think this is just like you don't hear it much in the conversation about Chicago movies, and I think it's a really good one. See, I for me, it's never really felt like Chicago. Like, okay, it kind of feels like it could be any city. I forget very much that it's Chicago. Um, and maybe it's just because it was filmed in parts of the city that I don't go very often. It's a very different kind of Chicago movie. Cause most of the times, you know, when they're doing Chicago movies, they want to show certain landmarks, um, certain streets, certain structures. And this movie isn't interested in doing any of that. Cause it's doing sort of these tucked away places, uh, and rooftops and stuff like that. And it certainly looks scary and dangerous and intimidating, uh, which is, you know, you could say is part of the problem in the way that it's um, trying to, you know, make commentary about what a dangerous place these more urban areas are. Um, Every I, street has thousands of rolling pieces of paper. <laughs> but I, trash can fires. Uh, mm -hmm. But I tend to, you know, I'm not really watching the movie in that way. I'm watching it more as just like a straightforward urban action movie. Yeah. Um, John Carpenter was originally did a pass at the script. Yeah, it went through like some some hands. So I saw like uh, I think it was it was Kevin Yari, another writer. There was another writer, and then there was a producer. Like it was Joel Silver and this other guy who was the James Robinson. Maybe I, no, I don't know. That's not it. He's the Morgan Creek guy, but it was the guy who started Largo Entertainment. And I guess like him and. Joel Silver had a falling out, and this was like that guy's first, like Jerry Bruckheimer esque movie with his production company. That was Judgment Night. Okay. Yeah, but uh, one going back to the Chicago thing. Um, one thing I do like about it is 
I'm fascinated, like, when you see on Emilio Estevez's license that he's from Evanston. And I'm just like, man, I've never seen a group of guys have so much trouble getting from Evanston to, like, the United Center. (laughs) There was a lot of traffic. Come on. I mean, I get it, but, like, they left at daylight. So, so like, say, you know, it's in October, like, it's 6 o'clock or something like that. Just leave at 5. You'll get to the fight. Yeah, it is a little bit, a uh, little bit crazy. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just always, it's it's like these guys are just going to a sporting event in a way that I've never seen in my thirty-seven years on Earth in Illinois, where they're just like, "Let's rent an RV." It's like, why? Where are you going to park that shit? Yeah, for some reason, I was remembering it as like a bachelor party, but it's not. It's just we're just going to a boxing match. Yeah, it seems a little, a little bit much, and also like. <laughs> who's this RV dealer who's just like, yeah, sure, take it. <laughs> right, you can borrow it for a night. Yeah, spoiler for Judgment Night, but like when Jeremy Piven gets dropped off the roof, is it wrong of me to be a little bit relieved that he doesn't have to talk to the RV guy anymore? <laughs> is it wrong to be relieved when Jeremy Piven gets dropped off a roof in any movie? <laughs> I don't think so. But I was just like, man, that's he really lucked out by not having to have like like I this just shows how anti confrontational I am. <laughs> that I would rather be dropped off a roof to my death than have to like explain why their car got destroyed. <laughs> um, what do you think of the other performances of the movie? Like Piven obviously is fine because he's just doing Piven. Like yeah, he could do that in his sleep. Um, Stephen Dorff, I forgot how young he looks in this movie. He's like a baby. Yeah, he's. I think he's more interesting in this movie than he is in most movies for me. And I say this as somebody who more likes Steven Dorff than doesn't like Steven Dorff, but he seems to have some kind of like a, a river Phoenix it factor to him in this movie that he doesn't in most movies. I could see that. Yeah. I don't know. And then maybe it's like just all the flannel and like the fingerless gloves or something. <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr., you know, is another one of these actors who like you kind of have to rein in. And I don't know how often Stephen Hopkins was reining him in because he, he goes a little. He's a little big. He goes a little big at times. Yeah. Again, it's an interesting character in terms of being the counterpoint to Emilio Estevez in terms of being sort of this hothead and, Hey, you used to be like this and well, how come you're not like this anymore? Um, so I, I don't think he does a bad job, but I just think sometimes he's bugging his eyes and just going a little crazy. Uh, yeah. you want him to, to dial it back a little. You'll never wonder in a movie of Cuba Gooding juniors in shock about something. <laughs> <laughs> he will let you know. He will indicate that emotion. As I was thinking about watching uh, Judgment Night leading up to watching Judgment Night, because I just rewatched it today, um, and I hadn't seen it since that's an apocalypse screening, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the movie where Kubi Gooding Jr. is like a disgraced referee. And, th- and, that, and then I remembered, like, oh, no, that's Rat Race. <laughs> I, was confusing, oh, yeah. I was confusing Judgment Night with Rat Race. Yeah. It's a you know, it's a big plot like point in that race that he's a disgraced referee. Everywhere he be, goes, people are mad at him for making a bad call. That would be an amazing crossover if you had rat race, but then like they notice that Michael DeLorenzo getting executed and then they have to <laughs> run from Dennis Leary. <laughs> and it all ends yeah. on stage at a Smash Mouth concert. 
And then they You're are an like, all-star, babe. And then they win the money, and he's just like, and then Jeremy Piven's like, here, you can take all the prize money, and then Leary, like, throws him into a mosh pit. <laughs> I rewatched Rat Race not that long ago, because I thought maybe my kids would like it. Yeah, how would it hold up? Uh, you know, about as well as it did in 2000 or whenever it came out. It's a it's a perfectly serviceable time waster. A big all star cast of almost all actors for whom I have very little affection. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's like there's so many famous people in this cast. Why don't I like more of them? Yeah, this is one of those movies. Judgment Night is one of those movies where I was I had my 2020 brain on a little bit too much. Where I was just like, man. They should just Google Maps would have saved them so much trouble. Absolutely. Why is this movie not better remembered? Like people talk about this soundtrack, but not this movie. I don't know. Um, I, I, from what I read, they said that this was one of those movies in the '90s where, like, there were fights in the theaters, and it got pulled prematurely. But from looking at the box office, it didn't really open all that well either. No, it opened so, like fifth. Here, right? li- listen to this top ten. It's opening weekend because oh this will just make you cry for the state of movies currently <laughs> in comparison. All right. Number ten was The Fugitive okay. in its eleventh week. Wow. Number nine was The Age of Innocence. Uh, which I've never seen. I own the Criterion Blu-ray. Have have yet to see The Age of Innocence. I want to like it, but my Daniel Day-Lewis allergy will not uh, allow it. I understand. Um, Joy Luck Club was number eight. Also never seen it. That's a good movie. Um, I even liked it when I was like 12. <laughs> I, I know Indies, Rada. Mm-hmm. I know Indies. <laughs> um, number seven was The Good Son. Oh, okay. Which you were wondering if there's a show there. There might be. I would I need to revisit it. but Yeah. Um, that's a Joe Rubin joint director of Money Train. Hey now, hey now, he's an all star. <laughs> he's a Joe Rubin would totally be at the Smash Mouth concert, um, dancing on stage with Amy Smart. Oh my God! I wish I've never wished to be Joe Rubin more. <laughs> I've never uh, wished to be at a Smash Mouth concert more. Yeah. Uh, number six was Judgment Night, and it's opening weekend. Oh, I thought it um, opened fifth. It opened six. Ouch. Yeah. Number five was Dazed and Confused in its first week of wide release. Holy shit. Number four was Malice. Holy shit. Number three was Cool Runnings. Uh, Which I've never seen. (laughs) Number two was the Beverly Hillbillies, which we'll probably play at that drive-in this summer. (laughs) What is happening? Why are like four, five, and six amazing and then the Beverly Hillbillies is beating them out? Yeah, well, it was the debut. I don't know what to say. Even still, though. Um, and number one was Demolition Man in its second weekend. Wow. Well, you had but also in theaters at the time, I mean, you had like a Bronx Tale. You had Striking Distance. You had The Program, For Love or Money, Rudy, Jurassic Park, Free Willy, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Fearless. Lots of good choices. Yeah. Just like now. Exactly. You could see either the Flintstones or Jurassic Park. Yeah. Or both. I'm just, yeah, just another victim. That's what they'll say when I buy my ticket. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, also, one thing that I noticed was 
Listen to this roster of 1993 Universal Pictures. All right. This is going to make me so nostalgic. This is crazy. I mean, Universal in the early 90s was pretty pretty hard to beat, uh, but especially in 93. 93, you had... This is an order of release. Give me a second. Okay. Matinee. Army of Darkness. Mad Dog and Glory. CB4. Cop and a Half, Splitting Hairs, Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, Jurassic Park, Heart and Souls, Hard Target, The Real McCoy, Dazed and Confused, For Love or Money, Judgment Night, Carlito's Way, We're Back a Dinosaur Story, A Dangerous Woman, Schindler's List, Beethoven Second, and In the Name of the Father. Wow. That's a good year. Yeah. 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 I saw In the Name of the Father because Schindler's List was sold out. On behalf of Jewish people, we did our job. <laughs> and I saw Heart and Souls as a sneak preview with Jurassic Park. Like I remember it, that. It was like my fourth viewing of Jurassic Park. But it was like, if you see Heart and Souls, you can stick around and see Jurassic Park for free. That's a good deal. Yeah, it was worth it. And there was another... Mm-hmm. There was another movie in there that uh, I don't remember. There was another one where I had like a dumb story like that, but can I tell you three things that bother me in judgment night? Always. Okay. The first one is that there's that weird comic beat. That's nowhere else in the movie where the dude is bringing out pop at like Fullerton market. It's way too late in the movie for that too. Like, yeah. Singing Al green. I kind of have a problem with the fact that they're not completely alone during that final confrontation. I feel like it should be building to total isolation. And instead Mm -hmm. they're like in a store where there are people working. Yeah. Yeah. You got the overnight guys and the security guys. Yeah. Yeah. I also don't think like, okay, granted they saw him kill. They, you know, the guys saw Leary and his crew like kill a guy but does the end really justify the means of all the stuff that they went through that night? They're like raiding <laughs> housing projects and like pulling people out of their apartments and they're killing security guards and stuff. It's just like, maybe you should just let it go. Yeah. That's, I mean, if there is one major logic flaw in the movie, it's that they would have just been like, Oh, they got away. Oh, well back to being anonymous criminals, I guess like this whole no witnesses thing. They take a little too far. Yeah, yeah. Um, Another thing is, okay, this is like the last line of the movie where Estevez gets his wallet back and the police officer just goes, that's a good-looking family. (laughs) Like, if I were Estevez, I would have been like, mind your business, dude. (laughs) Like, now are you going to come to my house and bother me? Like, is this like an unlawful entry situation now? He's pulling up on Sunday in a different RV. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like it. It's a weird move. I'm not a fan of what the cop did there. I think he overstepped. Um, Another thing is the thing that bothers me the most in this movie, the thing I cannot get out of my head, it bothers me more than the Piven death. If I were in the shoes of Emilio Estevez, I would never have given that guy my wallet because he didn't need to just give him the money. Right. But then he's like, here, here's all my identity including the address to where I live. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? That's the thing that like, I think drives like 
a lot of the suspense of like the second half of the movie is like, oh no, he might go to this person's house. Right. And that's scarier than anything. And that woman is beautiful. <laughs> it's a nice looking. He was family. my ER crush. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, you know, I appreciate that they're trying to set up this idea of like, okay, but even if you get away, you're not really getting away. So you have to finish this once and for all tonight, you know? Yeah. Um, they sometimes stretch logic a little bit in order to do it, but I get the dramatic purpose for what they're going for. After the bad guy is off, Estevez should have gone, you stay away from her. You stay away from her. <laughs> he should have borrowed it from the rat. I mean, it was a, it was a, a brand pack thing. You can, you can pick it up, take it, yeah. use it for yours. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else about judgment that you want to say? Um, mm, nothing important. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's your, is predator two then your number two Hopkins? No, I think I'll go nightmare five and then predator two and then predator two and then ghost in the darkness and then blown away. I've never seen lost in space. It's a, fucking mess <laughs> it is yeah there's so many things in there that like well this could work this should work this is almost good um i still have a great deal of affection for it but like none of it quite lands the way you want it to but you should see it mm-hmm. yeah it's I'll... my pick of the week <laughs> oh man i love picks of the week <laughs> Anyway, thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you, Adam, for talking about Judgment Night with me. It was a blast, as expected. Yeah, no, this is this is a great movie. If you have not seen it, to anyone listening, it's my pick of the week. <laughs> it's uh, it's available, you know, to rent streaming. There's a Warner Archive Blu-ray now, which is very nice because I think I was getting ready to pull the trigger on like the German import Blu-ray, and then Warner Archive announced Judgment Night, so. Uh, and they have sales like three times a year where you can get it for like $11. Uh, so you can wait for one of those. Uh, as always, you can find us every day at fthismovie.com on Twitter at fthismovie, or you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com and find us in Apple podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We hope that you are all staying safe, staying healthy. We appreciate you listening to us during these bizarre times and we will continue to try to provide you guys with some entertainment and some escape uh, during what is one of the weirdest times since I've been alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you watch judgment night with one of your dependents and they don't like it, rent an RV, go on the expressway, get off at a shady exit and leave them. <laughs> Just another victim. Ked. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Have you seen the net, babe? <laughs> <laughs>